G'day, everyone. Welcome back to the Talking Leadership Podcast. Thank you for joining me again. I'm uh, very happy to be continuing my conversations with individual leaders who I've met through the Best Practice Network and a series of podcasts that I'm still working on with the Queensland and New South Wales uh, Regional Facilitator, Mr. Kevin Bennett. But it's not Kevin that I'm speaking to today. It's one of uh, one of the guests that you've listened to on a previous podcast. He is currently the Head of Operations at Street Furniture Australia. Can I welcome to the podcast? Christopher Morgan, how are you, Matt? How are you? Doing very I'm, well. I'm good, my friend. Thank you for joining me. So this this is this is a great extension to the previous conversation because it's one thing to be talking on a panel. It's quite another to have a one-on-one conversation. So this is a, a slightly deeper dive into the issues around leadership from from your experience, not necessarily from those of your colleagues. So let, let me get started where we where I start with all of these conversations is your leadership and its beginnings, mate. In uh, 200 words or less, give me give me the uh, give me the summary, Chris. It's, a, it's been a, an interesting journey. Pretty well manufacturing from the word go. Started uh, started life as a, uh, a shop floor operator, getting a bit of a job before going to uni. Found that I liked the fact that I was getting paid for doing what I was doing and uh, just never quite got around to going to uni. So not being able to just continue doing what I was doing and always wanting to try something new, I sort of started helping the, the guys that were setting up the machinery. And before I knew it, I was a tool setter working on the big die casting machines. So obviously in the die casting industry. So that was a, an interesting interesting industry on its own with uh, lots of pitfalls and, and you know, very hot, very dirty. In many respects, a great primer for, for a young fellow starting in manufacturing because it's probably one of the hottest, hottest, dirtiest jobs that I have ever come across. So to this day, when someone comes up and says, wow, it's hot today, I just shake my head and go, no, it's not really. And uh, that, that sort of continued. But then from that, in the, uh, the late 90s and early, sort of early 90s, this whole thing called TQC came in, the whole total quality control became a thing. And it really caught my interest. And I basically started getting really, really involved with that, started running some little projects on my own at the company I was working for at the time. And then it ended up started almost becoming a role. And I started, you know, having started on the floor, ended up taking care of a lot of that, what was, you know, has turned into now continuous improvement and, and lean. But back then was was just more of a quality tool that was being introduced and forced by Ford and Holden, forced upon suppliers. So got really fairly heavily involved in that. And then that progressed on to getting a, a tap on the shoulder from a, a HR fellow who'd left that company to go to Another company, which at that stage was CIG Gas Cylinders, so CIG, the gas company, they they had a, a little plant with about 150 people, and it was a bit of a specialty one because they it was non-core business. They didn't make gas; they made made gas cylinders. So again, manufacturing in the aluminium industry again. But this plant was a bit different because it was used by CIG as a test bed because it was isolated. So I was given the tap on the shoulder, come and come and play with us. Um, so I took it as a, in a, a continuous improvement type role and joined one of the teams there, again on the shop floor, but in that continuous improvement role. But what was really interesting there is that they had a process whereby every six to 12 months, they would take the whole company offsite, completely redesign the structure of how the business worked, go back in, we'd run it for six months, and if it worked, we kept things and they rolled them out to the greater CIG. If it didn't work, they forgot about it and we tried something different. So the entire structure of the business changed every six months. Team leaders, you know, self-managed teams, all these sort of rotating roles in the teams. They went through a phase where we tried to have, there was no designated team leader. Everyone took a turn to do team leader, quality manager, planner, coordinator in the team, and that rotated. 
every month so that everyone knew what was involved in everyone's job. So some really, really interesting ideas that many of which were terrible and never worked, but it basically really cemented the idea of change as a good thing in my mind. So where I'd like the idea of change before, this really locked it in is that I like change and it's a good thing. And I think that's probably been guiding me ever since is that much to the annoyance of the people that work for me is I love change and a lot of managers don't, but I'm always willing and always wanting to try something different to change things the way they work. So that worked really well. That company got sold to a global company called Luxfer, who were rolling out a program called the Luxfer Production System, which sounds awfully like the Toyota Production System. And in fact, apart from a couple of name changes and badge changes, it pretty well was. So by this stage, I was the, the continuous improvement facilitator at, at Luxfer for, for New South Wales, for Australia. And... That got really interesting because once they started rolling out that whole Luxor production system, they wanted to benchmark. And this is a global company. So basically, once every six months, the, the continuous improvement managers or facilitators from every plant around the world got together as a group of, say, six to 10 people. And we went and did a two-day audit at every single plant around the world once a year which was absolutely eye-opening to be able to go to Germany, UK, America, all these different countries and actually go to their plant, do a two-day audit, give them a, a snapshot report, and then move on to the next one. And all in up, it was, it was about a, a, a three to four-week process every year. So what it gave me is that much, much broader view on how different people do things. And, and some things that were just standard run-of-the-mill processes that we thought of in Australia, you, you'd go to some of the places in America and they were just like horrified of why would you do that? What's the, what's the point? Some really eye-opening experiences, like for, for example, one of the main Luxor companies in the US works with this super form, the, you know, hydroforming plastic uh, aluminium. So they're blow molding aluminium for all the jets and the lots of aerospace, lots of military contracts and got into the conversation, which again, you know, very much a manufacturing things about tool setup and machine setup time. And the guy looked at me as if I was talking in some foreign language because he, I said, well, don't you try and reduce your setup time? He said, what for? We charge the customer for setup time. Why would we reduce it? And we're like, myself and the guys from the UK just sort of holding our heads and going, my God, what? <laughs> Surely more uptime is better. And they said, but why? I, they didn't get it because they were charging for the setup time. So why would you reduce it? Why would you reduce something we're charging for? That, and, and that's the sort of thing that really makes you realize that no, everyone doesn't think the same way. Things that are obvious to you are really not obvious to some other people, despite supposedly being trained and educated in all these lean methodologies and, and everything, you can still end up with some really wildly different views on things, which is which can be good. There's a lot of things we saw in some of the companies that really made you rock back on your heels and go, you know what? We've been thinking about that completely wrong. And I'm going to take that back with me, which was the whole idea of the exercise. We'd, you know, we'd all shuffle off back to our respective plants in the different countries. And then things we liked, we'd implement. Things we didn't like, we'd just shuffle under the, under the carpet and never, never speak of them again. And that's, that really did set me up for that way of thinking. Again, change. Change is good. Change is good. Constantly look at what other people, which is why when the Best Practice Network came around a few years back, quite a few years back now, that was like, yep, that's exactly the way I think. And that's why I want to be part of that. And I think we were the, Street Furniture was one of the first New South Wales companies to join the Best Practice Group being, you know, probably coming out of Melbourne and the, the car industry, because it promotes that type of thinking is that, you know, don't assume the way you're doing things is the best way to doing it. There is always someone who's doing it better than you are. You really need to go and find them. Don't, don't sit back on your heels and go, yep, I'm happy with our process. It can't be any better because that's wrong uh, and it can always be better. So 
So that went for, you know, I was there for quite a few years. That company ended up, uh, which is an interesting learning thing as well, is that we were ranked as one of the top three out of the 30 plants in the world for Luxa. But then there was a bit of a global downturn. So the US plants basically went, we've got excess capacity, shut down Australia because we want that capacity. And they gutted the whole factory, turned it into a warehouse and made everything in the US. Even though we had some of the top ratings, best business practices, when it came down to it, it didn't matter at all, which was a bit frustrating, but it's another lesson that if the work's not there, it doesn't matter how good you are. So that was a bit of a learning exercise there. What I've drawn from what you just said, and, and this isn't a typical response from the people that I'm talking to. So uh, just go with me on this for a little bit and I'll, I'll, sure. I'll ask you a question that the it's not typical for, I think, leaders to be accepting and embracing of change. I mean, I think there's an awareness of it and you need to have the tools to deal with it as and when required. But that idea of uh, continuous change and thinking about how do you constantly get improvement is a slightly different mindset in that in that uh, on that continuum and i think the more you get to that end zone where you're in where you you're welcome of it and you're seeking continual change is not a space people play in naturally that a either want to or b know how to do well because uh, it's one thing to want change is another thing to have the toolkit to embrace it and get something out of it because i i'm 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 on board with what you're saying that optimally that's what you'd want to do but it's kind of like getting out of the trench with your with your buddy and sort of running to running forward and then thinking, well, where the hell am I running to? And is there is there an end point there? And I, I, guess, I guess philosophically, if you're on the journey of continual improvement, then there's never an end point. There's a pause, try some stuff out and then continue on the journey. I, I think it, there's stopping points, but it, it never ends. And I think that's counterintuitive to the way people think. Is that is that fair call? I think, and, and yes, this has been pointed out to me a number of times, especially by some of the other department leaders that they're, you know, you're not like a normal production manager or operations manager. We're not really sure what to do, but it's, it's, I don't know. It's just, to me, it makes sense. Now, I think a lot of it is once you get to this sort of level, what you want more than anything else in the world is stability and control. By embracing that type of mentality, I'm giving that up to an extent. I'm basically saying, look, I don't know how well this is going to go. Rather than having this really nice, tightly controlled, forecastable, planable process, because I'm going to be constantly tweaking it and constantly at one stage, I may go, you know what, that wasn't, that didn't work at all. Let's throw it out and start again. And I think that's a bit scary for a lot of people because there's risk and it's the appetite for risk. And I think that's what it comes down to is that you know, rightly or wrongly, my appetite for risk in that regard is probably much higher. And I think a lot of that comes from where I started is that I can, you know, I know what it's like on the floor, very conscious of what it's like to be on the floor and how frustrating doing something in a way that isn't the best way or that you can see a better way. And a lot of the times people like me don't listen because we think we know. And I don't build furniture all day. I don't manufacture those things all day. I'm not a welder. You guys should be telling me how we should be running this place and I should be supporting you. And I guess that's the, but to do that by its very nature, I'm giving up a certain amount of control. And I think that's the thing people don't, because, you know, once you're the head of operations, you should have an iron control on everything that's going on. And and that is, as you said, it's a bit counterintuitive. Do you want stability or do you want constant change? You know, nine times out of 10, it'll be, we want stability and constant change is not yep. something that... That, um, that were necessarily geared for longer term. And it's a fascinating perspective. And it, it leads me quite uh, nicely into asking you, 
How do you define leadership, Chris? So you've been around, you, it, it seems that you've, you've straddled multiple worlds. It's in, you've been knee deep in operations, doing the doing of the work. You've moved up. You've trained in areas that you found interesting. And I think you may have an entrepreneurial spirit buried, buried in there somewhere that never quite escaped or spoken with some entrepreneurs that there's almost this, this gut wrenching need to embrace change and to find and ask the question, why, why not? And how do we do things better? And these things, these questions don't lend themselves to constant stability. And and the fact that you said that you were in organizations that re-looked at their entire systems every six months, it just does my head in because, uh, you know, you, you their assumption there is that the people that you're uh, taking on that journey with you understand why you're doing it. And mm-hmm. I think assuming that can be dangerous and I would without and I don't want you to reveal numbers but I would assume that there would be a certain level of turnover there that some people see that happening and go no I can't work in under these conditions I need to be somewhere else I would think that some people would not gel with that uh well very, very much yeah very yeah. much there's always going to be that percentage of people that do want to do things the way they've always done them and just head down and let me do things and I don't want to think about it it's often a difficult one because often those people are really good workers I think you do tend to lose those people over time because they don't want to get on that bus of constant change or they just say, yep, you know what, you guys keep going ahead and do what you're doing. I'm just going to sit in my corner. And in many respects, I fully embrace the fact that you do need those people at times. There are certain jobs, certain roles, and we've got them here where there's certain roles that are really not very exciting. And those people gravitate towards those roles. And when we do change things, they grumble a lot, but then eventually they come back on board because now that's the new normal. There's an underlying need to take people with you and yep. um, you can you can dissipate some of the grumbling if you take people along. If, mm. if change is done in a controlling command and control type process, you're going to lose more yep. people than you keep. Right. I think if you can bring them with you. Now, now that, that presupposes that the manager that's in charge of that understands that you've got to bring people with you. Uh, because I, I would I would assume in your role as head of operations that what's the nicest way of saying is you got a lot of shit coming at you all the time, and I, I understand that prioritizing in that in that constant flow of work can be difficult at times. And it, it, the frustrating thing for me is to hear people that that um, talk about oh, we know, leaders need to take some time out and be self reflective. That's a lot easier to say than to do at times. I mean, it's optimal to be a reflective practitioner, but making and, and you have to make a conscious decision to make the time, which comes back to the idea that if leadership is a choice and you have to make a choice to do something and, and give you time to think. And just by the way that you're engaging with me on here on this on this podcast, sorry that I think you're that kind of individual because you've teased out a lot of well, we could talk for hours on the stuff that you teased out just in your introduction, mate. But um, I think I think rightly so that some jobs are, are not glamorous jobs, but they they give you a certainty and a repetitive. There, there's a, a repetitive certainty that the job is going to be what it is for you know forever almost. I mean, people don't think that way, but long term and the time when somebody says no we're going to have to change how that works or there's going to be a change in the process then you upset the apple cart and and some people don't want to be managers they don't want to be leaders they don't want anything but to do their job and do that well and um, often I think leaders without doing it intentionally forget that our teams are made up of people with different views of the world of work and we don't all come in to work for the same reason is that fair call very very fair call and then again I think it comes back to the difference, I mean, you can be a very good technical manager, but being a manager, it's, it's about people. It's about, you, you might be, you know, the most process-minded, best record keeper, 
make sure you tick all the boxes and cross all the T's, but it doesn't mean you're going to manage people very well. And it's it's more about, to be honest, the hardest part of the job is you know, being able to bring those people with you far more than any of the other stuff. You can learn the other stuff going doing courses doing doing all that educational work you learn the other stuff unfortunately i find that the only way to learn how to deal with people is to deal with people and, and some people can do it and do it really well others not so much and, and i think this is one of the points that popped up in our some of our previous conversations is this thing about you know some of the best leaders are the ones who don't necessarily want to be leaders whereas people that really want to be in charge and be leaders quite often aren't the best leaders because of the reasons why they do it and, and it's about i think from from you know, a senior, like someone in my role is identifying and being able to identify, you know, that person is really good at getting his teammates to, to do things. So they're actually the person I'm going to look at promoting, even though they may not be sticking their hand up. They're the person I'm going to want to try and encourage and give, the, give them those other skills because they've got the right attitude as far as bringing their teammates along with them. And that's more important to me. You, you, this con, this conversation fascinates me, sir. In in as much as uh, you've you've potentially uh, missed your calling as an entrepreneur, but you can always get to that. Or being a HR person, I think you're talking a language of of spotting talent and nurturing talent, and that's that's not it's not easy to do because sometimes, uh, and and this is this is not a failing of people in leadership roles. I think it's just. You have to play the hand that you're dealt. And sure. if you're looking to promote people, sometimes the overriding uh, path of least resistance is, well, Joe Bloggs has been in the job for 10 years, time for a promotion. And maybe it's, um, it's uh, you know, it might be uh, Joe Bloggs' colleague who's only been there for a third of the time that just has the ability to get the team galvanized. And it comes back to the art form of leadership is that you pr- you should be promoting on skills and ability to do the job at the next level versus time served in a role. And I've, I've encountered that in my travels that some people will say, until you've got certain year, the number of years under your belt, you don't know anything. And I often resented that on the come up thinking, this is bullshit. I, I, I can I can understand what's oh, going yeah. on here. I don't need 10 years to do this, but- Totally agree. <laughs> but um, let me throw a grenade at you. I think though, <laughs> I think you'll have, you'll have a, a view on this, that when you get to that point where you, you've got a few more years under your belt and you go, yeah, there is- some merit to experience in the role, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be either good with people or be a good leader. And being able to identify that and then make a decision about whether you want to be reskilled or not is often a personal choice. And I think the better leaders are able to spot that and have conversations around, look, I think you're on the cusp, but we need to tweak a few things. Are you keen? And it always comes back to that person, that man or woman has to make a decision about do they want to lead or don't they? And if the answer is no, then don't marginalize them. They just don't want to progress in the way that you see them progressing. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, And I think historically, you know, and this is one of those things that probably frustrated me quite a lot coming up through the ranks is that this whole, oh, but they've been here for 20 years. They know. And it's like, no, they don't. (laughs) Um, And it comes back to attitude is not something you, it's, it's a purely a, it's a bad attitude, and that isn't something that years dependent. If anything, it probably gets worse as you get older. There is no one, you know, time is not a, uh, it's part of, the, part of the whole scenario. It's not the be all to end all. And if, if you're stronger in one area and that's better, regardless of what the time is, then that should be taken into account. I mean, it's, it's, you've got to look at the whole picture, not just take one thing like, oh, he's been here longer than he has. 
Well, no, but this guy gets involved in, in improvement teams. He comes up with suggestions. He's constantly trying new things. Whereas the other guy who's been here for twice as long doesn't do any of those things. I, I'd much rather spend the time and effort on the guy who wants to change because, you know, that, that's the path of least resistance. And sometimes that's, you know, that's the way you've got to go because you want things to change. And, that, and that's um, part of the, the art and the... Um the lonely sort of nature of, of leadership that you've got to make that call and it, it may not resonate well with some people, but that's why you get to where you get to and you get paid what you get paid to exactly to, right. make, to, to make the decision. And that's, yep. um, that's again, it's all, it's all about that choice. Oh, yep, you're not going to be your favourite person for everyone. <laughs> no, no. Um, look, I, I don't want to leave the, the podcast finished without asking you, um, Chris, define leadership for me according to you. In, in, in from your experience, mate? Leadership is enabling the people around you to be the best they can. A lot of the, the leaders that I've spoken to previous to our conversation, at least in these podcasts, is their measure of success, which I'll ask you about, which is linked to that, is the more they build people and those people move on, yes, there's a crushing effect of people leaving your team. But if you're building someone up, it's it's almost like a parenting role that they've got to leave the nest at some point. And unfortunately, cutting that umbilical cord sometimes can be uh, problematic for some people, but it's you need to see people advancing themselves. And if you know that someone outwardly says, I, I want to improve and get better, you're signing up to a relationship that says, I'm going to help you to get there and mm-hmm. you're going to exceed that at some point. And then working for me and my team or this company may not be where your future is. And that's, I think that's part of the process. Now, I'm not advocating for a second, build up your staff so they piss off on you and you don't have any more staff. I, I think for some that are on the come up, that's part of the, the gig, I think. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer, and I think that's the, uh, the the UK millionaire fellow put it quite well, that you know, you, would you rather than not improve and stay or improve and leave? And I'm a firm believer in that one. You know, I'd much rather they learn and they get better and we gain from that. And if that means that later on they're going to outgrow us and, and move on, well, we've had that journey where they have improved the company versus not learning, not improving and still being here. Sorry for interrupting, Chris, before I forget. Is that a measure of success for you? Yes. The, 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 the big one for me, and this is, I know you haven't actually asked the question yet, but the capability of the business as a whole is greater now than it was last year, than it was the year before. That's that's how I measure. And it may not be financial. It, it usually has to be, but it may not be financial. It may purely be capability uh, and, and being flexible enough to meet the customer's demands. If that's what you require, if that's what the, the market needs, then by making the business as a whole more flexible and more able to meet those changing demands, that's success. So if year on year, our capability gets greater, that's a that's a measure of success. All right. Here's, here's another grenade for you, mate. Um, uh, I think I can do this because I think you'll have a, a view here. The tension between the measure of success, which is the place has to make money. And of course, your, your, your organization has to be, um, has to be, uh, a, a trading, you know, solvent has to make money. Obviously when push comes to shove, I guess when you're looking at what other capabilities you're building, is it often that you're thinking in the back of your head, we've got to make sure that we're constantly making the dough or is, building other capabilities and almost um, an investment in growing that return into the future. It's it's an interesting one because I, I get told by the, uh, the 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 more senior the directors and things that know your your response. You don't worry about the dollars. That's the sales team. They worry about the dollars. That's rubbish. Of course I do. <laughs> it's always in the back of my mind because if I don't, I won't be able to play. And, and quite quite frankly, I mean this is one of the things where I guess I have a very different view, which you may have, may not realise from this whole thing is I've got this really awesome 
playground and I can play with it and build it and, and make it do what I want, providing I meet a couple of requirements. So if increasing the, the, the workload out the door gets us more money, that means I have more toys, which means I get to change more, I get to grow more. And, and I guess that's that, you know, whilst that, that bottom line isn't in itself a target for me, it is because that enables me to be able to improve everything that's going on out there and then meet that increased capability. You know, I, I get it. And I guess the, the connection there, and this is where you'll, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, that if you've got a really good sales team that are bringing the jobs in, um, I think the catch-22 there is uh, you're increasing our workload exponentially, but you're bringing the dollars in. And then the, the symbiotic relationship between yourself on the floor and those that are selling is, yes, they're bringing more clients in, but we've got to have systems that help us get the jobs out in a timely manner. And then yep. you, 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 you're kind of creating a, a rod for your back, but it's a good place to be. You want to have yes. more work than less. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. okay, yep. okay. And look, I know that, you know, when everyone says to me, how's everything going? It's like, we're really, really flat out, but that's better than the other option. <laughs> yeah, no work, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Look, for those listening, um, it, when I'm not trying to go down and make this a simplistic conversation because it really no. is. And what, what you're bringing up, Chris, is quite nuanced. And I think and until you get a time to actually talk this stuff out, I think assumptions are always made about just how people in these roles are developed and how the bits in an organization fit together. And it sounds like you, you work in a good environment and the fact that you've got the capacity to talk with your other senior colleagues and pu- push what you know works versus what doesn't. This is this is, These are the conversations you hope are happening in any organization. And I'd, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when, um, when some of those conversations are, are happening because um, everyone has a different set of priorities. And I think that's why you'll have the CEO that you've got and others in in more senior roles that are looking at the whole system going right this is how the bits fit together and um the art of that just like the art of the work that you do is how do you make them fit and work together with the least amount of tension humanly possible um yep. I, I think i think that's one of the things that come up mate this has been a, an amazing discussion I, I need to ask you the next question i think we touched on this in the previous podcast but yep. i want to see if your thinking has changed uh at all or if you want to expand on your previous response is a better way to put this the nature versus nurture question are leaders born or are they made uh, yeah and, and that's an interesting one because yeah i think it sort of comes back to the attitude point that Attitude is not something you can give someone. So you can end up with, and I think that comes, that makes it a bit of a, and I don't want to be a non-answering on this one, but I think you can train someone to be very good at managing resources, numbers, even to an extent, people when they're treated as a resource. Those are things that can be trained. Getting people to actually want to follow you comes down to attitude and how you treat other people, and I don't believe that can be trained. Final question, and then uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity for a bit of a plug for uh, Street Furniture Australia. Let me ask you this, mate, as as, uh, as someone who's been in the game for a little while, and you're looking back on your leadership pathway, mate, what would you say to a younger version of yourself about being a more effective leader? I think, and this is this is interesting because when I made the comment earlier about some people who want to lead shouldn't be allowed to, I believe early on I was probably that person. And early on when I was pushing myself up the ladder to get off, to get, to get out of the trenches, so to speak, my reasoning to do it was entirely selfish and probably, and not probably, definitely not, not for the altruistic reasons that it probably should have been. And that I would say now the things I look for in a leader, I would have stopped and said, no, Chris, you're not a good leader. And at that stage, I wasn't. So it's, it's that, you know, 
worry about more about the attitude and what you're doing and why you're doing it rather than just the, the end game. Probably wouldn't have changed the outcome, I'd like to think. But you know, just that, that concentrate more on that attitude thing and, and bringing the other people up with you, more less so than on you know, getting myself up to that other position, which was very much a focus when I was younger. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I guess, yeah, you learn as you go along. And um, as much as we were talking before about uh, it's not about time served. I think when it comes to leadership over time, you can change your practice. You can get better at the craft if that's what you want to do. So Chris, this has been great. So um, over to you, Street Furniture Australia. What, what is it that you do and how can we get, how can we find out more? Well, Street Furniture Australia, as the name implies, makes street furniture. I've been around for 35 plus years, one of the largest single suppliers of outdoor public space furniture in the country. We export um, without doubt at some stage in your life, if you're in Australia or a number of countries around Australia, you would have sat on, used or walked past our furniture. Um, it is one of those brands that is in the background, in parks, streets, all over the country. Uh, and uh, we're now getting to expanding quite enthusiastically overseas um, into you know, Pacific Islands, the US. We've, we've recently completed a big project in uh, Long Island in New York where we furnished the entire new subway system with our furniture, which for an Australian company is, is something really to be proud of. So, you know, very much that outdoor lifestyle. So it's, it's basically enabling people to enjoy the outdoors is, is what we do. Brilliant, Chris. Thank you for that. For those listening, I've been speaking to Christopher Morgan, who is the Head of Operations at Street Furniture Australia. Thanks again, mate. Not a problem at all. Been a, been a pleasure. Thank you. And for those listening, this has been Talking Leadership. Thank you again for supporting the podcast and we'll catch you all on the next one.